Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. It is rare to find a boss who is still in essentially the same job as he was before I first met him, especially since we both can claim over half a century in business. In fact, I can only think of one, and today he is chairman of what he has turned into a rather unusual company. John Neal has been with Unipart since it was an unloved division of British Leyland. It was a supplier of parts for the company's cars, and about as successful as the rest of that ill-starred group. So in 1987, he organised a management buyout, and he has been in charge ever since. I said it was a rather unusual company. It was built on a vision, partly borrowed from Toyota, to establish what he called the Unipart Way. So, John, welcome. Thank you, Neil. Very nice to be here. And I think you should start by explaining what you mean by the Unipart Way. Well, the Unipart Way is best described as a philosophy of working, which is underpinned by a suite of tools and techniques, which we continuously improve based on our experience. And the objective is to enable us to improve faster than the best alternative available to our existing and our potential customers. And that way we hope to keep our customers for life and secure the long-term prospects and prosperity and future of our employees. That seems pretty reasonable. So it has grown to a £900 million a year operation even though demand for spare parts for Austin and Morris cars can hardly amount to a business today. But supply chain solutions covers a multitude of sins, and there is at Unipart. It is more of a philosophy, as you say, than a description. So what is the company, what does it look like now? Well, in fact, our turnover is in excess of a billion. And when we did the buyout in 1987, we, in reality, had a single point of failure. And I was determined that we would build a company that would be in multiple geographies, in multiple sectors, in multiple technologies, with multiple clients. Of course, we always have to keep on reinventing our business. We never can have a room for an ounce of complacency. But today, our logistics business is partnering with some of the world's leading car manufacturers like Jaguar Land Rover, McLaren, Tesla, Volkswagen, with the leading technology companies like 3, Sky, Apple, Vodafone. We have a big logistics business in rail, and we have a huge business supplying all of the hospital trusts in the United Kingdom, our healthcare division. So everything that a hospital trust needs can be supplied via Unipart, whether it's a packet of Rice Krispies or sophisticated equipment. And we also have a global heat exchange business. We've got a technology group. As of last year, we're building our construction technologies business as well. So it is a very widely diversified group of companies. Of course, we remain very focused on ensuring that we have no single point of failure because the world is so uncertain. Indeed. What's the ownership structure? 
Well, that's a really important point, Neil, because after we did the buyout, there was a lot of pressure on us from our institutional investors who were keen to see the company float on the UK stock exchange. And and we were sort of thinking of doing that. And the more I learned, the more convinced I became that the only way to secure the business for the long term was to be able to take a long-term view. And to take a long-term view, you have to have an ownership structure which is committed to the mission of the company and isn't focused on its own goals. So, for example, in the city, if you want to remain flavor of the month, you have to hit the EPS targets every year because that's what the fund managers want. And for us, survival and growth of the business is far more important than any short-term set of financial metrics. So today, the company is owned by its managers, its employees. I own a significant stake. And we also gifted our pension fund a substantial stake in the company. And I say gifted because pension funds take a very long-term view and we have a mutuality of interest. And it's also a source of great comfort to our clients that if they give us the opportunity of becoming their business partners, they know that we're going to be there for the long term for them. And we're not at risk of being taken over by somebody who would have a conflict of interest with them. And that's meant that we've been able to win some really fantastic blue chip customers and keep them for decades. That all sounds very fine. The question that I always find myself asking on this company is, it's clearly a a business model that works. Why has it not been followed by others because you're not an evangelist, you're a businessman, and you've built this business, and it's a perfectly credible and helpful way of running it, but you seem to be the only one. Why do you think that is? I'm not altogether sure. I mean, there are others like us. For example, I was talking to one of the senior people in Bosch yesterday, and Bosch has a similar business model to us, and some of the family companies, particularly in Germany, the Mittelstand companies, have a similar model. John Lewis has something similar. But unfortunately, the business model that seems to work predominantly in Western capitalism, the US and the UK, is based on people coming in, buying companies, looking after them for a period of time, and then exiting. That's how the VC and private equity model works. And the city is driven by the demands of the the fund managers, the shareholders, and that often drives the wrong kind of short-term behavior. I think I looked at it, out of the Fortune 500, I think only 10% at most have survived 50 years. John, do, do you have any institutional shareholders now, or have you, have you basically removed them from the share register altogether? Um, we bought them all out over time. The final okay. one that we agreed that they would sell their shares to us, which we then gifted to the pension fund. I told them that they got 100 times their risk equity back within the first three years, and they achieved over the time with us, which was over 25 years, 15% compound return on the shares from the price they originally paid to what we paid them when we agreed they would sell their shares back to us. Just one thing, I was interested by what you said about Bosch. Bosch, obviously, and this was something that... uh, I think the there's the Oxford academic, a guy called Colin Mayer, got very interested in this idea of what he called purpose. And he used to use Bosch as an example of a business with purpose, which meant exactly that, defining what you were in business to do other than make a return for your shareholders. 
Bosch has a trust, which essentially sets out the goals of Bosch, which are whatever they are. They're to do with engineering excellence and all that sort of thing. Do you have a similar thing within Unipart, where you have essentially designed a purpose for the company which goes beyond uh, or is, is not necessarily identical to the sort of purpose a, an institutional shareholder in the city would have? Yes, it is. And long before the idea of purpose became fashionable, because when we did the buyout in 1987, mm. we got the leadership team together to figure out what kind of company we wanted to build. And we wrote the mission statement in 1986, and then, of course, adopted it following the buyout in 1987. And the mission statement says, Unipart wants to be an enduring, upper quartile performing company in which our stakeholders are keen to participate. And then it goes on to talk about pursuing our values and creating collaboration between the various operating companies, ensure the synergy works between them and so on. The first phrase is the one that we should really focus on because that was 1987. And at that time, people thought stakeholders were shareholders and Unipart were right at the forefront of pioneering the idea of stakeholder capitalism, if you like. When we said we want to be an enduring upper quartile performing company, that wasn't just in terms of return on assets. It was in terms of employee engagement, customer engagement, operational excellence, to be the best at all of those critical success factors that ensures long-term survival of a business. And then we explained what we meant by a company in which our stakeholders were keen to participate. And Unipart paid a significant part in the tomorrow's company investigation. And they pretty well adopted Unipart's model. And so what we meant, and, and I lecture on this in our company university, our stakeholders are our customers, our employees, our communities in which we do business, our suppliers, and our shareholders. And if we can inspire them to want to stay with us for life by giving phenomenal service to our customers, continuously exceeding their expectations, continuously bringing them new ideas and new solutions. If we can continue to upskill our employees via the university we built, we built the first corporate university and through the faculties on the floor. If we can build long-term relationships with our suppliers to help them work with us to continuously improve quality, cost and delivery, then we're going to succeed in having a viable long-term business. Obviously, if you asked a kind of uh, red meat-eating institutional investor or private equity investor, you know, the perils of the sort of approach you've adopted, he'd say, well, you know, there's no threat of takeover, there's no threat of to the management. So therefore, there is, uh, they'll all just get entrenched and uh, serve their own interests. How do you guard against the risk that you basically don't feel the immediate pressure to perform? Well, firstly, let me say I completely disagree um, with the idea that um, not being subject to takeover somehow means that you are complacent or you become entrenched. I think the exact opposite is true. You know, very often companies are so scared that they're going to be taken over that they take short-term actions to improve their share price, and then that can't keep going. And then all of a sudden, there's a big train smash, and they get taken over, restructured, new management come in, or whatever. And there's plenty of evidence that that model has failed comprehensively. So I think that's very flawed thinking. And I've had this debate with many of them over time. I don't think Unipart, well, listen, while I'm there, it will never be complacent. We will always be passionate about trying to reinvent our company to participate in the future. We'll never be satisfied with our operational performance. 
The reason I can say that with confidence is that in every operating company, everywhere in the world, in every business unit, in every department, people meet every day in what are now their digital communication cells. And they measure their quality, cost, and delivery performance. They measure employee engagement. They engage in problem solving. And I can see that through my own dashboard that I've got. Chief Digital Officer built this system for us. And I can see that every day people are looking to make process improvements, whether it's in the art room, which is our company restaurant canteen, or whether it's in any one of our contracts anywhere in the world. As soon as people achieve their quality, cost, or delivery metrics, which they have on a digital comm cell, as soon as they achieve them, they set higher targets. And so they're looking to make a process improvement almost every day. And that's deep in the culture. Can I ask you just very quickly about a little bit about your own kind of background and how you arrived at this approach? Because, you know, I don't know, but Neil probably knows more than I do, but I, you don't often think of British Leyland as a kind of uh, school of enlightened management practice. No, and it, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, look, I, I, uh, I decided I wanted to be a businessman when I was 12 years old. I then left South Africa and uh, with my, my parents when I was, when I was 16 and I came finished my education in Scotland. And I decided, as I said, I want to be a businessman. And so the only place where I could study business at that time was Strathclyde University. They had business school and I went there and did my first degree. And then professor said to me, you should do an MBA. And I said, Professor Patterson, I thought you had to go away and go and work for 10 years before you do an MBA. And he said, yeah, but if you do, you'll never come back. So you should do it now. And he was brilliant. He found sponsorship <laughs> for me, GM and so on. And I, I went to General Motors after I did my MBA. It was pretty good company in those days, but I was never going to make it to president. I was 16 levels of decision making away from the president. And I thought, well, this is not going to happen, even though they made me their youngest overseas executive. I was approached by BL, by John Egan, who is a, a brilliant business executive. And at the time, he was sales and marketing director. And then the MD was Lord Shepherd, Alan Shepherd. And they were very impressive business people. And they said, you can come and join us. And if you do, we make all the decisions here. Nothing goes to New York. We can make whatever decisions we want. And I spent six weeks in a hotel in Oxford thinking about the business. I remember going back to see John and Alan and saying, look, I can explain this business to you in four charts with four arrows. And we are destined for terminal decline and failure because part sales are a function of previous car sales. And BL used to have 50% market share. In those days, it had 35 and was losing 1% a year, which it continued to do. So I said, car sales are going down, part sales are going down. The only market that's increasing in those days was the DIY market, and our share of it's going down, and no one's heard of our brand. So if we're going to succeed, we have to do parts for all makes of cars, and we have to build a strong consumer brand, and we have to massively increase the sales and marketing budget from a few hundreds of thousands to millions. After quite a few meetings, they were persuaded. Lord Shepherd said to John, give him the money and let him get on with it. That's how we built the Unipart brand. And that's a, a long story, but it was fundamental to the buyout in 87 because at the time, the consumer research, the independent research from you know, NOP and you know, well-respected uh, research companies showed the Unipart brand was more trusted than Marks and Spencer's. And indeed, more Ford car owners thought Ford recommended Unipart than thought that they recommended their own motorcraft brand. So that was absolutely fundamental to us controlling our own destiny. 
Well, you've certainly uh, succeeded in controlling your own destiny. One thing that struck me looking at the history, you sold Unipart Automotive, and shortly afterwards, it actually failed. Why do you think that was? Was it because the buyers did not understand the Unipart way, or because it was in terminal decline anyway because of some of the things you've just mentioned? We bought a company called Partco, which we thought was a profitable, successful business. It was a publicly quoted company. Having bought it and done then the detailed financial analysis, which we weren't able to do before, it was clear it was losing money. Various managers failed to turn it around. And so the board asked me to run it, which I did. And I spent two years taking it from losing 20 million to break even and on track to make 20 million. And there's no question I would have done that. And we did that by putting in the Unipart way, which was probably the first place anywhere in the world where the operational excellence system or or lean tools and techniques were deployed into a multi-site operation. It's quite difficult to do it in small operations between sometimes only six or seven people and at most 30 or 40. And that was done extremely successfully, very high levels of customer engagement, employee engagement, transformed the financial performance. But we did decide that strategically the automotive aftermarket was going to decline, and it has. And so the board said, look, we should exit this business. And a private equity firm came along and offered us a good price for it. We decided to keep a 50% stake, although they had total management control. That was the deal. And within a few months, they had taken out the Unipart way, managed it purely on a set of financial ratios against our strong advice took out daily delivery, which was something we put in place, went back to suppliers delivering to the branches. And within two years, they turned a business that was on a trajectory to make 20 million into a business that lost 20 million. That was purely the way in which the PE guys decided that they knew how to run a business, and they didn't. And I'm really angry that they damaged it so badly and destroyed it. But we had no management control. All we had was a stake as a silent partner. Hmm. I can understand why you're less than enthusiastic about private equity. Well, not all private equity. I mean, to be fair, there are some PE houses that do a really good job. They, they take companies, fix them up, float them, and they, they succeed. So it's not binary. Obviously, you've, you've been running your business for many years. You've seen many business cycles. What's your sense of where we are now? And what's your general sort of thought on the business environment that we inhabit at present? Look, I think the world is in probably the most dangerous place that I can remember. Just a few things can trigger a really bad set of consequences in the Middle East. And then we know that has consequences for the flow, for supply chains and so on. And I think the UK committed an act of incredible stupidity by leaving the EU. We disconnected ourselves from the world's biggest, richest, closest free trade market. And we were absolutely the the go-to place for foreign direct investment because the UK had so many of the characteristics which people liked about setting up businesses here and also access to the world's biggest market. And we just cut ourselves off from it. And we need to find a way of reconnecting with markets that have more in common with us and our values than some of the other markets. But having said that, I still think the UK is a good place to do business. And for next year, our plan is to grow our revenue and our profits by double digits. We have done so in 2023, and we expect to do so in 2024. 
And we've got our new construction technologies business, which I think we can scale globally and do so very fast. It's a really interesting set of technology which the world needs. So do you think that when, if you finally retire, Unipart will be a much bigger company and more directly, what do you expect to happen in the event of you actually deciding to retire rather than going on for another 20 years? <laughs> when people ask me that, I, I used to say I'd be retiring the same age as, as the Queen, but not at the same time. <laughs> but, um, that means I'll have to carry you out. Yes. Well, um, I mean, look, I love doing what I do. And while I believe I can add value to the business and the business believes I can add value and I enjoy doing it, I will continue as executive chairman. But the reason I'm confident about the future of the business is that the whole executive team are as passionate about the Unipart way as I am and totally committed to the philosophy which I wrote 50 years ago. I mean, they've embraced it wholeheartedly. And it is now so pervasively in the business that if you know I stopped leading it tomorrow, it wouldn't all decay. So if the board decided they wanted to float the company, of course, they'd have to get my permission, which I wouldn't give them. So <laughs> they can't do it unless I agree. It's one of the, the shareholder rights, which, which I managed to negotiate at the time of the buyout, which uh, the private equity guys now run uh, seminars on how not to do in the future. <laughs> do you think if you did retire and you gave up your right, do you, are you confident that the business would continue in the same way that you've built it? i.e. it wouldn't float on the stock market, even if you didn't have the power of refusal? To be really honest, you could never say anything for sure. But I would have taken the steps to make sure that there was a board of directors that had the same values and belief I have, and that we have an executive team that shared my values and beliefs. And at this moment in time, we do. And my job is to make sure that we continue to do that. I wish you um, every success, John, and it's a delight to talk to you again after quite a long gap. You're, you're very welcome, Neil. It's lovely to, to talk to you again. We, we should meet up for lunch. We used to do so we did. quite regularly in, in the old days. Uh, you know, maybe we could find some time to do that. In those days, of course, I mattered, but nowadays I'm just an OAP. <laughs> <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.